Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. and welcome back to another bonus edition of Truth and Justice. I got to tell you that I am really excited to be speaking with my guest today. Most of you know Mara Leverett because of her groundbreaking book, The Devil's Knot, which was later turned into a scripted movie starring Reese Witherspoon playing Pam Hobbs. But Mara has been a powerhouse of an investigative journalist in the criminal justice space for decades. And what I really love about Mara is how genuine she is. I think back to Sarah Koenig, the creator of the Serial Podcast. She convinced us all that she genuinely cared about finding justice for Heyman Lee and Anand Syed. But after the podcast concluded, Koenig disappeared and has nothing to do with Anand's current legal battle. The same cannot be said about Mara Leverett. She published The Devil's Knot nearly 20 years ago, and today she's still in the fight firing off open records requests and still insisting on answers from the West Memphis Police Department. She is the best of the best, and she joins me today to update all of you on her progress and her continued fight for justice for not only the West Memphis Three, but also for the victims that we have referred to as the forgotten West Memphis Three. Right after a short break, we'll jump right into my conversation with Mara Leverett. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm joined today by someone who, if you have any kind of familiarity with the West Memphis Three case, you definitely know this name. Her name is Mara Leverett, and she is the author of the book, The Devil's Not. Mara, thanks so much for taking time to sit down with me today. I'm glad to do it, Bob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, oh, it's my pleasure. Um, First of all, I definitely want to get into the things that you've been doing recently with the West Memphis Three case. But prior to that, in case there's anybody listening that that isn't familiar with your work, can you talk about uh, the creation of The Devil's Knot, the work you did for that case, and and what became of it? Okay. Well, I've been a reporter in Arkansas for a long time, and I had 
eventually become interested. I'd seen some stories that struck me as deserving more than just newspaper articles or magazine articles. And uh, they are, they were stories that involved crimes where I began to realize we were not being told the whole story. And so that led me to do one book called Boys on the Tracks. After that, I and that's about uh, two two murders, very very strange murders that uh, remain unsolved and very suspicious to this day. Then I turned my attention to the West Memphis case and wrote Devil's Knot. Then after that, I wrote uh, after the Alfred plea and the guys got out of prison 10 years ago, I joined with Jason Baldwin to write a book about his story, his experience in that, being the youngest and going off uh, being charged with these murders and having prosecutors asking for the death penalty for him at the age of 16. And But when he got out, he uh, agreed, and we did that book uh, called Dark Spell. And then most recently, I just finished another book that involves another high-profile uh, criminal who had some time in Arkansas, the smuggler-turned-federal informant Barry Seal. And that book is called All Quiet and Mina. So to go into the and, and and at the time that I wrote all I had no intention of writing the the book about Barry Seal except that I was asked to and but at the time that that came up I was planning to write a third book uh, about the West Memphis case so that was put on hold but now with the work that you've done Bob I'm really glad I didn't at that point because obviously there's a lot more to the story. Well, you know, you the work you did. Uh, I admittedly, my first uh, introduction to your work was the the Devil's Knot movie, and then after watching it, I found out that that it came from a book and then read your book, and it was just fascinating and also just so impressive the amount of research that you did. Can you talk about the process? How long? Because the the book came out was it two thousand two? I think so. I think that sounds right. Um, yeah, and and my books take years to write, and and it actually started my first the first anything I wrote for publication about the West Memphis case was just was the October the 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 tri- second trial was in um, I think May uh, uh, or June of ninety four, and that October. I went to the. I filed my first freedom of information request with the uh, West Memphis Police, and it was to see all the evidence. Ironically, and I went to the police department, and I got to spend a couple of days in the evidence room. And but one of the things that I saw there were the two transcripts of the confession taken from Jesse Miss Kelly and. I was so shocked by what I saw in those that I, I wrote a column saying the scariest story I know to tell you this Halloween is about what happened in West Memphis. And that was, that was back in 1994. Then I, I uh, finished. I wrote the, the other book about the um, boys on the track and then went straight into writing about the, the West Memphis trial. And I've often thought, uh, looking back, that 
even at the time, I felt that I was looking at uh, a magician's act, kind of uh, trying to learn the tricks and how things were done so that the appearance of something being done properly was there for the audience to see. But there were many things happening that the magician knew and that were going on out of sight of the audience that made it all turn out the way it did. And that was that's, that image stays with me as to what that experience of seeing the transcripts and talking to people and writing that book was like. Yeah, because you went so much deeper. You know, the the case gained popularity because of the Paradise Lost movies, but you know they were following along the trial, and but but didn't seem to be digging super deep into you know anything much further beyond the surface of the case. And I was I was astounded when I read your book how deep you got in the people. You know, who were I guess for people, you know, they they have to go read the book to get the whole story, but. Um, can you share, can you share some of the revelations that you found through the writing of the book and the research for the book that maybe people weren't aware of who had just seen, say, Paradise Lost, and that was their introduction to the case? Well, I always, I always credit Paradise Lost tremendously with what, uh, with the outcome, everything that happened yeah, uh, in this case. The all the attention that came to it sprang from the work that those filmmakers did, and it was terrific. One of the most <laughs> interesting asides from that that I learned later on, much later in talking to them, was that that um, they were they were negotiating, talking to the people there, uh, the officials, about trying to get permission. It's, all, it's legal in this state to, to film trials. It almost never happens, though, because Prosecutors don't want to because they're all planning to, no, I shouldn't say that, but, but many of them are looking towards their political futures and thinking something stupid might show up in a ad against them if it was all recorded. And, and then, on the other hand, defense lawyers want to protect the future of their clients and don't want anything that they might be embarrassed by coming out uh, being uh, available uh, in recording. So, and judges, same thing. So, so everybody's kind of got an interest in not getting this. Uh, recorded. So there was a lot of effort that had to go into that, to making those films. And one, one of the things for, for Jesse and Ms. Kelly's, the first trial, uh, they told me that the, as they were up there tr- sitting in, they were allowed to sit in with the county officials and, and just kind of be at the table while plans were being made for this uh, trial and security and everything else. And then the question came up, well, what about letting them... Um, uh, film it, and somebody said, "Well, I don't think our our uh, microphone system, our sound system, is good enough to really uh, be a good good enough for for film quality." And they jumped in and said, "Well, we'll just put in a new sound system for the courthouse." <laughs> and right. They did. they did, and that's and and that's sort of how history gets made in a lot of ways. They said, "Oh, well, a new sound system for the courthouse. That sounds great." And so that permission was granted, and then the uh, the second trial, of course, as well. After that, I was also um, I was also very struck by the fact by John Mark Byers' criminal background. I, I was there was not anything much known about that, but he had had a um, conviction for taking a cattle product, a, a stun gun, basically used for cattle, to his former wife. 
uh, in a domestic dispute, and he was convicted of terroristic threatening. And then that uh, conviction was was um, sealed by the court, by Judge Burnett, uh, because he was going to become a, a police informant, uh, and he did. And then he was later arrested in Memphis, across the river, with guns and drugs in his trunk, trunk of his car, and uh, take it, the U.S. Marshals took over his case, and that was the end of it. There was, that's where the, tra- the, the trail went cold on him. And and so I thought, my gosh, what else is going on in in with this uh, group of people that we don't know anything about? And one time I I did uh, when I found out that I actually was able to get the records on buyers that had been sealed. I think someone at the uh, clerk's office just goofed and let me see them, and I was outside the. Crittenden County Courthouse one day, and, and Judge Burnett came out, and, and I asked him about it, and he was so upset. He was just furious that, that that had happened, that I had been able to find out about that. So a lot of the things like that. Yeah, I'm sure they, you know, they, they, they sort of tied the hands, well, not sort of, they absolutely tied the hands of the defense through, through both trials. What was the process like when when the movie got or the book got optioned for a movie? Was that something you were pursuing, or did did someone come to you about that? Uh, yeah, no, I I wasn't pursuing that, um, but I was approached by uh, the producer who ended up making it, and um, and I there were a couple of different scripts written for it, and there were there were you know I got I got a good uh, education in how hard it is to get a movie made and get a movie that is, is especially like this, that has so many ways that it could go wrong. And I was very grateful for every effort that was made to tell the story and also then to, uh, to stick as closely as possible to the truth of it. And um, in that regard, one of the things that really impressed me was how much of the cast were not U.S. citizens. There were there were there were Canadians. The director was a Canadian. Then there were uh, there were pe- cast members uh, from New Zealand, I believe, Australia, uh, who who were like many people from, as I'm sure you've found, from other countries, who were really distressed by this story and and shocked that it could happen in the United States because they had such a high opinion of our justice justice system. So. It was it was gratifying to get to to um, see see that commitment, and they all took it very very seriously that this was this was uh, an important thing. Yeah, that's great. Did you get to have much involvement once the the film was being made, or once it was optioned, were you kind of out of the loop? Well, usually, usually the um, once it's optioned, you're out of the loop, and it's it's a dicey thing for authors. I was fortunate that the producer promised me on the front end that uh, I would be able to see everything that was being planned and um, and object to anything that I found, you know, unacceptable. And so I, my commitment was that I respect that they're making a movie and they're not making a documentary and they're not making a book. 
And so that there were differences in the way things had to be done and that these are artists and, and people who are professional in their own right. So fortunately, we had a very um, uh, respectful relationship in that regard, and I appreciated it. Well, that's great. Did you get to meet any of the any of the cast? Uh, Reese Witherspoon comes to mind in particular. <laughs> well, actually, um, one of the things that was was very nice was that the producers um, invited Jason and me, and I don't know if, if anybody else was. I think that the others were invited too, but at least Jason and I uh, went to to Georgia, where the film. Was being uh, where it was being filmed in this wonderful courthouse that where that was being used, and got to spend a day just hanging out and seeing how it was done, and that was really just a kindness being extended to us. And um, so, so I got to uh, Reese Witherspoon was there, but she was very much more uh, protective. Um, I think she was pregnant at the time, and she was taking her her downtime to herself. And but but Colin Firth was was there having lunch with the, the crew and the wardrobe people and us and he was just he was just a very ordinary guy on the set and it was that was a, a real pleasure for me to meet him as well as as the other cast members. They everybody was just kind of ordinary folks and you know, putting their their heart and soul into this project, and and uh, at that point, you know, it had just been the the guys had just recently been released, and so uh, there was a lot of trying to understand what had happened, even there on the set. How did this ha- How could this have happened? And what was the Alfred play all about? <laughs> right. So, so, so it was. It, but it was it was a lot of what going on with everybody who who gets interested in this um a lot of a lot of trying to understand it and a lot of uh taking it seriously judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, that, that's awesome. You do that experience. And, and and I thought they did a fantastic job with the movie. And I, you know, I think it brought in awareness to a whole new group of people that maybe don't watch documentaries, but uh, you know, people that are just watching scripted movies that gave them some awareness of the case. Absolutely, absolutely. And one thing that I've always been impressed uh, with about your work is that you you really seem to stick with this case. You know, this case in particular. You know, you didn't write the book and then just move on to the next thing. You've still you've still stayed involved, and that's kind of what I'd like to talk about now. Is 
you know, after we did the the year long podcast series and then the, the the TV series, you know, we finally got a big push again from the general public against the DA's office to try to get some evidence retested. And you know, my audience is familiar with the story. I know you are too. That you know, then through the pressure that came from the audience, the the Scott Ellington agreed to test the evidence. We had emails going back and forth to the point where he was. You know, last August was asking for the FedEx account number for the lab we were going to send the the items to, and then he just ghosted us, and then the you know he just stopped replying to any emails, and then we have a new DA takes over, and then the new DA comes out this winter and says the evidence is all gone, some of it's been destroyed, we can't find it. My feeling all along at that point was that he was lying. I know I talked to Damien and Damien thought that you know, they, they really did destroy it to try to uh, stop any testing from happening. But I just felt like there's no, we know, you know they, they told us they had it. They told us they were packaging it. It couldn't have been destroyed years ago in a fire. And then I, I see on social media that, that there you are, Mara's still in here is taking swings and, and, and still working to try to find the truth and justice in this case. So can you talk about what you've been doing with the case over the last year or so? Okay, well, I I um, was just finishing my my last book, uh, and that that just came out in August. So as you were getting uh, all of your good work done on this, uh, I was deep into my other one and just following what was happening uh, on your front from a distance and really really cheering you on. But then then um once my book came out and all of a sudden I had some time and then I began to um uh, realize that there's something happening here that uh where I could really play a role and it was just simply because in this state uh you have got to be a resident of the state to file a freedom of information request with officials of this state and um, I knew that the um, the attorneys were had entered that battle, and were were doing it, and then were being stiffed. And it, boy, that crawls all over me. You, you, I, the, our Freedom of Information Act is so important federally and in every state. And I feel that, that that's why I go into stories where I think where something's being hidden from us. Mm-hmm. That because this is really basic to me. I, I'm a First Amendment person. I believe that we need the information in order to have a democracy, and that that is what is going to make us, this country what it is or isn't. And so, so uh, the idea that, that public officials would defy, defy a state law regarding uh, the release of information was real um, inflammatory to me. So that's when I decided that I would I would start filing, and then as soon as I saw that report from uh, Prosecutor Cressman, that that uh, where he said that he's he's telling a public audience about evidence having been lost, and at the same time not res- uh, and not responding to to um, a freedom of information request, and in fact. So the attorneys there are, of course, doing their own work, but I thought from a public point of view, I can jump in there, and that's what I did. And then I, the first thing I did when I 
when when I think it was the mayor who mentioned back in the summer uh, that yeah he thought it was uh, he'd heard it was something about a fire, and that's when I thought well well let's just see what the fire department has to say about that, and then there have been uh, other FOI requests since then which we can talk about. Yeah, and I thought that was I actually talked about it on on my podcast a few months back that. What a brilliant move. We're all sitting here banging our heads against the wall trying to get FOIA requests through to the West Memphis Police Department and the DA's office. And then, yeah, I saw on social media that, well, Marl Everett went the other way. And if they said it was burned up in a fire, you uh, requested, uh, well, you can explain the request, but it's essentially you asked the fire department to produce any re- records of fires at the police department. And if you want to share with people what you found with that. Well, I, I asked for um, records on any uh, city, any city. I didn't ask about the police department. I just asked for any city-controlled property, and that was so that I could I would cover everything. I was just trying to make it as as for, for uh, any property owned or controlled by the city of West Memphis, and I figured that included the uh, the police department, and there wouldn't have been too many of them. So I went back. In two different, two separate uh, requests, I, I covered 20 years, the past 20 years, and they did comply. They got back with me in a timely way and sent me records from two fires, neither of which uh, amounted to much of anything. Um, one had been, uh, by the time the fire department got there, it had been extinguished with a fire extinguisher, and, and the other had been uh, a very insignificant fire that had nothing to do with, with um, potentially storing evidence. And so I, I, uh, that was mystifying, wasn't it? Because we had the, uh, this reference to fire, but, but the fire department's not coming up with anything that, that uh, seems to fit the bill. So, you know, that was the first, that, that was kind of one of my first clues when I saw the results you got was, again, kind of confirming that they're lying about this because, you know, I have as a fireman for 16 years, I know what kind of records we keep. And had there been a fire significant enough to destroy evidence in a police building, certainly there would be record of it and seemed to be that wasn't the case. And I thought I saw you, did you say something on social media recently, you had put something out that you found out about another fire that there wasn't a report for or something. So that was just yesterday. I, uh, I had, obtained a, uh, a number uh, that I thought might have been a record number for the fire department. So I, I uh, yesterday filed a, an FOI, yesterday morning filed an FOI uh, request, a new one with the fire department, asking specifically for this particular record by number. And the chief, Chief Clay, uh, got back to me in a matter of hours, and said, we don't have anything by that um, number. And, in fact, I realized it did not seem to correspond to the way, the, the way that the, the numbers on the records that I had gotten looked. So I, it was kind of a shot in the dark. Uh, but so he wrote back, and I said, well, I guess I, um, I must have gotten a wrong number there, <laughs> or that I must have been incorrect. And I'll get back with you if I get anything uh, more that looks better. And then quickly after that, uh, he responded and sent me a police report, a report from the West Memphis Police Department that had that number on it that I had requested. So it was a police report 
and and he um, he said he just sent it to me and said I think this may be what you're looking for, and so I appreciated that. I still did not understand. Oh, and then in that that police report, it outlined what I then uh, wrote about about a, a, a fire in a storage building. But that police report that I saw for the first time yesterday said that the fire department was called and extinguished the blaze. So there's still a bit of a of a question for me about that would have fallen under the category of what I asked for of buildings owned uh, or or controlled. Maybe maybe the the squeamish part there is that I asked for buildings and this was a, a storage a conex a, a big you know one of those it's almost like a like a, a container that would go on a container ship you uh-huh. know one big metal container uh, and so maybe because it was in a structure like that that was not actually a building maybe that was what fell put it outside of the bounds of, of the way I had worded my my FOI request to the fire department in the first place. I'm not sure exactly what happened. But at any rate, I can say uh, that it was the fire chief who then provided me with the police report about that I wrote about yesterday uh, in this storage, this conic box, as they call it, which it was uh, where some um, evidence was reportedly burned. Now, was it, did I understand right? I, I thought I read that there was some stuff burned in the box, but then they found a box with West Memphis 3 evidence, like in a field or something, away from it? Yeah, it, this, is, this, is not, uh, this is not very clear, and, uh, and it's the way it often happens with things like this, but it's listed on this uh, West Memphis Police Incident Report as an arson with damage of more than $500. And it included also the theft of a firearm, uh, and in this case it looks like it was two, uh, that were valued at less than $2,500. So we don't know about, about all that, I, uh, but it also says that there was, uh, well, I'll just read exactly what the, the narrative here says, that on September 19th of 2016, at approximately 6.39 hours, 6.39 in the morning, as officers arrived to West Memphis Police Department range, officers observed smoke coming from the Connex box that holds evidence. West Memphis Fire Department was notified and arrived on the scene at 6.50 hours. The fire was put out and the area was contained. CID was notified and upon arrival, the scene was processed. Evidence was located approximately 100 yards west of the Connex container and was collected. Fire Chief Dwayne Rose was on the scene and ruled the fire an arson. Chief Rose collected fire debris from the area where the fire possibly started, and it is logged as evidence as well. That's the whole story, basically. And then there are some, uh, there is another officer who, who uh, also put in a note that he had, uh, quote, collected, quote, a brown cardboard box that was previously stored in the connex that holds evidence for the West Memphis Police Department. The box was laying in a field approximately 100 yards from the connex. And um, then, the, then there was another one about that, um, that 
the firearm involved in another incident with the, the incident number for that was unaccounted for after the detailed inventory was completed. And at this time, that firearm is considered stolen and will be added into NCIC. So that's about all we, all we know about what all that was. Well, what we, we have no idea what the, it, it, there's really nothing that mentions the, what we call the West Memphis Three case by, by, by number that would tie, uh, it doesn't say that, uh, even though it, it lists the incidents that, that the, that the firearm was, was related to, but it does not list what the ground cardboard box might have been related to. So it's pretty ambiguous. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right. And then there's a, and there's a few things there. I think the mayor had said the fire that destroyed the evidence had occurred 15 years ago. And this was just five years ago, five or six years ago. And then... Ultimately, the you know the, as they as you mentioned that the West Memphis Police Department was ignoring the requests. Uh, you uh, the the uh, Damien's attorneys had requested, and you had as well an an evidence log showing what evidence what evidence is still available, where it's located, if any evidence had been destroyed, when, by whom, and under whose orders, and how. And they've been ignoring that, and then that went up to a higher court. And finally, uh, it was it was ruled, and they were ordered by a judge to produce that evidence or that the information for that FOIA request. And can you share what you you finally got yours? What you found in your FOIA request once you got the report back? Okay, well, I I had um, looked at what the um, the attorneys had submitted in their request, and I sort of boiled it all down. They had a, a rather lengthy uh, like. 12, 13 items and so forth. And I, I just boiled them into four that I think basically say the same, same thing more succinctly. But uh, I asked for all records cataloging the evidence in the West Memphis Three case and identifying the locations of that evidence at the time of the, the cataloging. And I asked for all records referring to the loss, misplacement, or destruction of any evidence in the case. And I asked for all records identifying any policies or procedures to be followed by the WMPD in preserving evidence, including sources of potential DNA, seized in criminal cases. And finally, I asked for all records of communications between members of the WMPD 
former prosecutor Scott Ellington, prosecutor Keith Cressman, personnel of the Arkansas State Crime Laboratory, and any third parties concerning evidence in the West Memphis 3 case since August 19, 2011, the date of the Alford. And so, on um, last week, last week I received a partial response to that request. And what they did was uh, they did send me a, uh, a oh maybe ten page uh, spreadsheet of of uh, the various items of evidence. They also sent me a um, the the policy manual for the West Memphis Police Department, which talks about their policies about preserving evidence. So that is two. Those are two of the three things I requested. Um, I did not get, and still have not received, all records referring to the loss, misplacement, or destruction of any evidence. Although this one that I got from the the um, uh, fire chief the other yesterday uh, may may be uh, in part reference to that. And then um, uh, the, the 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 really interesting one to me that's not been answered is about records of communication between members of West Memphis Police and prosecutors and so forth. So that's still hanging out there, and um, and and time has lapsed. It's it's overdue. It has it has not been complied with according to the law, which to me is very very interesting. When you have a police department that's not complying with the law, mm-hmm. that's that's a big deal. So so then, but. To go back to what the the catalog, the the spreadsheet that they did send me, uh, has got a lot of places like a refrigerator and a vault crawl space and a storage room upstairs and a couple of different blue boxes that are identified, several different blue boxes actually, and a whole bunch of items listed by exhibit numbers and um and then it says what what all of these are specifically, and some of them are such as knives and blood samples and urine urine cell DNA kits from different people, uh, a green rain jacket that was Jason's, a poem on paper, a poem on white paper by Jason, and um, a blue toilet bowl cover from taken from Jason's house. All these kinds of things are, are listed there, but then, uh, of course, there are also some that are of very high interest to the attorneys because they're the things that they have wanted to have tested again and that they were looking to have tested for, with um, when they were in, in negotiations with Scott Ellington. And, and so I know that, you know, one of the things that, we were wanting to have tested was on the top of our priority list was the ligatures from the shoelaces, the ligatures from Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. Were the ligatures listed in your records request as though they still have them and know where they are? Yes. Yes. It looks like there are ligatures for, uh, there is a listed as a, and I know that this hair from the perineum of Christopher Byers was it was one important hair everybody wanted was interested in. Then there's another exhibit that is possible tissue from Christopher Byers' ligature, including skin, tissue, and hair from the ligature, uh, hair from Christopher Byers' body, possible tissues from the ligature of Michael Moore, 
uh, hair from a ligature from Stevie Branch, hair from Michael Moore ligature, hair from the lower body of Christopher Byers, two dark Caucasian hairs from Stevie Branch, and so forth. So, yes, it seems it, there are ligatures listed for all three of the victims. Well, that, that's fantastic, and it, that's it's new hope breathed into the case again that the, you know, after this, I mean, insane fight, you know, we, we've had this fight for so long to test the evidence through the year of production. When I was filming the show, we were trying to get the evidence tested and couldn't get a response. Then we finally get Ellington to agree to it. And then they play this hide the ball trick where we don't have the evidence. It was obviously a huge letdown. And so now at least we're back to the place where we know that the evidence does exist. Now it's just a matter of whether Crestman is going to do the right thing and let us test it. And so we're going to we're gonna keep on fighting. I know I'm working with Damien and his legal team. I know you're going to continue uh, working on things from your end. Uh, but it's, it's great to have that hope coming that there's a, that the evidence at least has not been destroyed, that at least most of the evidence, the stuff that we're looking for. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, and there were there were only two. Uh, uh, the, what they sent me was titled an updated uh, evidence list, updated. So I don't know from when to when, but anyway, that was how they titled it. And there were only two pieces of evidence that were listed as not found on this thing. And it was uh, one called Exhibit 138 and another one called Exhibit 275 that were in a blue box. <laughs> but it was listed in the storage room upstairs which may be where it is, where they are now or where they were supposed to be, but uh, maybe where they were supposed to have been. But that's not a comic. And there's actually nothing here that refers to anything being in a comics container. Right. So that's also kind of um, puzzling to me. There's no reference at all to evidence uh, in the column for evidence location. There's nothing that says anything like evidence being in a place like that. Maybe after after there was a fire, uh, you know, assuming that there's something to this fire report, uh, that that um, that it was all consolidated back somewhere else, and things that had been there, you know, it, it's very, it's still very confusing what what where where this evidence was was moving around, and if in fact whatever that that uh, that fire report that I just that report about the fire in the comics, if that really had anything at all to do with this case. We just don't know. Right. Were you able to track down what those those two missing items I, I think I had read that exhibit one thirty eight was I think I saw a photo was actually one of the random sticks from the crime scene. Is that right? I I don't know that. I don't know what either one of those was. Okay. They were they were um uh supposedly stored in a blue box um with other things uh that were in that blue box. But those two things that were in the blue box with other things like uh, a T-shirt from Miss Kelly and a T-shirt from Jason and um, uh, white tennis shoes of Jason and that toilet bowl cover, right? The blue toilet right, bowl cover. Right. Those were those were all, according to this, in the same or are now in the same blue sort in the same blue box number six. But two of the items listed for that blue box are these two exhibits that are listed as not found. So there are still lots and lots of questions uh, to be answered about this. But what it does say about what is there 
It, for instance, it says a red painted wooden stick was there. The bicycles, which were, there were some question about the bicycles. The bicycles are reported to be still there. Also, I can't find it immediately, but I think sticks used to hold the clothing down in the water were also here in, in the, um, in the, uh, uh, in this list of things that they still have. Well, that's great because actually those are some of the items that our, our lab that does the MVAC testing wanted to test aside from the ligatures. So that's awesome. It's great work you've been doing. Before I let you go, I want to. Uh, you mentioned that you're writing a third book on the West Memphis Three case. Uh, do you have any prospect of when you might actually finish that thing up and when it might be published? Well, actually, I no. I said I was about to start on that when when I oh, got right. uh, basically commissioned to do this uh, other book and, about Mina, and and so I I I did that, and right now. Believe me, I'm taking a breather. Right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's these, fair enough. These things take years of my life, and and so, uh, but at the same time, I'm awfully glad that as these things, as information like this comes out, that I can still uh, have have a role to play along with you, Bob, in terms of just getting uh, information out where where I can, and I'll keep doing that. Well, that's that's great. I mean, I'm 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 in all the work you've done, and it's and it's very impressive that you're still continuing to work on it. And so, the last thing I want to tell you: so you you have the boys in the tracks, you got the devil's knot. What was the name of your most recent book again? Uh, my most recent one is called All Quiet at Mina, and then the the one that maybe some of your listeners wouldn't have known about yet, but I'm I'm really proud of it is the one that Jason and I did together, and that's called Dark Spell. Dark Spell. And can you get all those books on Amazon or wherever you get your books? Yes, or links to them from my website, maraleverett.com. Either way. Fantastic. Well, with that, Mara, I will let you go, and thank you again so much for taking the time to join me today. Well, this was great. I hope we can do it again, and hope that there's really a lot to talk about next time. Let's hope so. You have a great day. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye, Bob. Bye. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. 
All the reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second, 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18 plus terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.